Everyone, remain calm. Yeah, ooh, ah, that's how it always starts. And later there's running and screaming. Somebody talk to me, what is happening? Welcome to Jurassic World. You're listening to the Jurassic Park Podcast. You want to consult here or in my bungalow? <laughs> Hold on to your butt. Well, we're back. Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of the Jurassic Park Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Jost, and we're here to talk all things Jurassic Park. On this episode, we'll discuss some of the most recent news, take a listen to some behind-the-scenes featurettes, and get your feedback on your favorite scenes out of Jurassic World. So let's get into some news from around the world. 18 minutes and your company catches up on 10 years of research. Access me, program. Access me, security. These pictures were taken in hospital in Costa Rica 48 hours ago. I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but look. Boy, my head being right all the time. But today, I guarantee it. Let's start off by wishing Chris Pratt a very happy 36th birthday. Chris turned the big 3-6 back on June 21st, and he certainly had a lot to celebrate. Happy birthday, Chris. <laughs> Yahoo Movies have revealed the source of inspiration for the Indominus Rex. They spoke with Jack Horner, who was quoted saying, I started the process with a dinosaur called Therizinosaurus that has big grasping arms. That was the most important thing. The grasping arms and its color. It's white. So we now know that the Therizinosaurus was not as long or as tall as the Indominus, and it wasn't even a meat eater. So it looks like the only thing they had in common were the long arms and the color. They were at least two features that made the Indominus more impressive. 22 years after its release, John Williams' Jurassic Park theme has reached number one on a billboard chart. Now, you may have heard me emphasize a billboard chart because it's a very specific billboard chart. It's the classical digital songs on billboard.com. While that might not be as impressive as you originally thought, you still have to give it credit for the 205% gain and 3,000 sold in the week of June 14th. What we need to do is band together and buy Michael Giacchino's new soundtrack for Jurassic World. Currently, it sits at number six on the soundtracks chart and number 126 on the Billboard 200. Let's get that up to number one. If you want to read a piece on the sad state of Jurassic Park character Robert Muldoon, then I found the article for you. Themusic.com.au put out an article about how Robert Muldoon's character was never fully realized. So while he does deliver one of the best lines in the series before his death, the writer reveals why his fate was one of the most depressing in the series. You can find a link to the article in the show notes. The new Jurassic Park Lego Visitor Center needs your help. Featuring the main entrance hall, two brick-built skeletons, the restaurant and gift shop, kitchen, VIP dining room, 
Emergency Bunker, Showcase Theater, Control Room, Genetics Lab, and Cold Storage Room. This LEGO set can be yours by helping to support it. With a little bit over 500 days left, this campaign needs 10,000 supporters to reach its final approval and head to stores. This set is huge and features the likes of John Hammond, Tim Murphy, Lex Murphy, Donald Gennaro, Ray Arnold, and Robert Muldoon. And of course, it also includes a for some reason gray raptor that they dub Clever Girl. I really hope it reaches the 10,000 supporters it needs because this is something that every collector has to have. Head over to support it via the link in the show notes. In probably the best piece of news this week, CinemaBlend.com revealed that Mondo is releasing the first vinyl pressing of Jurassic World. Michael Giacchino's soundtrack will extend its sonic waves onto 180 gram translucent green vinyl with a blue stripe in honor of Blue the Raptor. Even if you don't have any way to play vinyl, you might as well pick this thing up because its artwork is beautiful. Head over to MondoTees.com and pre-order because it's surely going to sell out quick. The album ships in September. For the third week in a row, Jurassic World is king of the box office. Bringing in 54.2 million, it beat out Inside Out with 52.1 million. Currently, Jurassic World is sitting at $1,084,500,000. The film is breaking all kinds of records. Let's go through a list of some of them. Jurassic World is the highest grossing weekend of all time with $524.4 million. It also has the highest grossing international weekend of all time with $315.6 million. The highest grossing domestic weekend of all time with $208.8 million. It also has the biggest domestic June debut, biggest PG-13 rated film debut, fastest to $200 million, fastest to $500 million done in 17 days. Also, Universal's highest grossing international weekend, as well as North American weekend. It holds the IMAX record for international weekend of $23.5 million and also the domestic weekend of 20.6 million, as well as a premium large format record of 16.2 million. And one of the best records is the biggest debut for Chris Pratt. Let's hope it keeps pushing the envelope and ends up all the way at the top of the all-time worldwide list. Good luck. has released a few behind-the-scenes clips recently, one pertaining to the Apatosaurus animatronic and the other all about the sounds of Jurassic World. Let's take a quick listen at some of the best moments. The new dinosaurs, of course, as is always the case, it's bigger, it's badder, it's, you know, got more teeth. And so, rather than trying to top the T-Rex, it is part Rex, but it's part of a lot of other things. And so, we had the freedom to go outside of the Rex world. We were sure to try and keep them distinct. 
So in that respect, we chose not to use similar sounds from the T-Rex, which helped. It made our job a little less challenging to try and match the T-Rex. We leaned with higher frequencies. It's more tweaked, it's more irritable, it's more spastic, it's a mutant. And so rather than being this very bold, deep bellow that the Tyrannosaur is, we went with something that was screamy and squealy. And at one point, Colin used the term annoying. You know, you just want this thing, you hate it. And we definitely needed to give it mass. So there's walrus in it, there's whale, there's beluga whale, there's lion, there's big, big, big pigs. So a lot of the body of the Indominus to give it its size is still large animals. But then there's lots of screamy animals in it that hit the higher frequencies using things like dolphins and using monkeys and uh, lots of macaques and spider monkeys. We used a fennec fox that was just really irritated and squealy. So finding other frequencies of animals to manipulate helped us to create a broader palette. The mosasaur, that's one that I sort of took the lead on, the big underwater dinosaur. I needed something with weight. I think the basis of it is walrus, but pitched in different ways. But there's also, because it's an aquatic dinosaur, uh, definitely reached for whale. I think it was a beluga. So, you know, finding a way for one sound to hand off to the other, for them to sometimes live together in the same space, a lot of times what makes that work is pitch matching. If you can have something that's low and have something that's higher but it's in an octave, then it can blend as one thing. And then one can hand off to the other. I noticed with the walrus there was sort of a guttural that it would make that had a very watery kind of sound to it. So that's definitely part of what helped it feel like a water creature rather than a land creature. But I actually didn't end up finding another walrus that sounded like the one I'd recorded. So I think just like people, animals have a very unique voice. And so the point of doing many, many animal recordings is not just to cover check lion, check tiger, check bear, but it is actually, well, that bear, that lion, that, you know, as opposed to their individuals, and they have a unique voice. And I think that's a part of the key of making an individual dinosaur sound like an individual. There's a scene with the Apatosaurus, and it's the only practical effect in the film. And it had to be as real as we could possibly make it. So we asked Foley to do some skin movement and some just head on grass and all of this texture that we needed, as intimate as we could get with these animals to bring them to life. These animals aren't real just because they roar and vocalize. They have to breathe, and when they're running, they're like racehorses or dogs. And so a lot of focus was put into the breaths of the animals as well. So that Foley texture and those breaths are, I think, really what happens in between the vocals that makes you believe that these things are they're real. We had a great time creating the footsteps for the raptors. We did some great outdoor Foley. Steve Orlando, who helped us set up these amazing outdoor landscapes. And being here on the ranch, we have such a great resource. You know, we don't walk out onto a parking lot in the middle of Burbank Boulevard. We are out remote, so we can do some really fun stuff that you would normally have to drive 40 or 50 miles to access. And we set up this outdoor pit of wood chips and different branches and things. And we had Benny Burt, one of our Foley effects editors, go out and act like a raptor. We took these DPA mics and we attached them to his feet. 
And then we had myself and Nia Hansen and Scott Coteau all out with recorders chasing Benny around as he ran around like a raptor. The gyrosphere was another thing that was sort of in my world. And that's a really tricky one because it's a vehicle that doesn't exist and it's certainly a wonder of science if it exists. And it was obviously a computer graphic in the way that it moved, the glass spinning around it. That's something that Colin said from the beginning is the gyrosphere is a major sound cell. So we had to find a way to give that some texture, some life, make it feel real. So I did a lot of glass recordings. One of the things I did was I took a glass carboy, big five gallon jar, and put a microphone inside, but because I wanted to spin it and I can't have a cable off the end that's getting tangled, I put it on a potter's wheel so that it would spin. So I put the microphone in and I put a wireless transmitter on the microphone, ran that to a wireless receiver. And so it's a freestanding, free spinning thing. And then I was able to take different wheels, different objects, and sort of rub it along the outside of the carboy, get the glass resonance from the inside, and could very speed it, so it's speeding up and down. For Jurassic World, legacy effects created a number of practical effects. Some were created to dovetail with the digital work of ILM, and some of them were standalone pieces. One of our favorites that we did, which went straight from the shop to the screen, was the dying Apatosaurus. The idea was to build the head and the neck that would be animatronic and could react with the two actors, and then ILM would extend it. We wanted to make you feel for this character, and so that became our challenge. We start out with a 3D design. This is milled out of foam. That milled piece then is cleaned up by sculptors, and when I mean clean up, you get all of the edges and rough texture that comes from the milling and detail it up. You're kind of taking it a little bit further than what's in the design. To me, the best design is always a vague design. It's up to artistic interpretation. Like any kind of reptile, I think about where does it move the most? Is that going to be wrinklier skin? Is it going to be tougher skin? Steven Spielberg, you know, conferred with Colin. It needs to be bigger. The order came down that we wanted to go for a rescale. We get 3D scanning involved, we scan what the artist traditionally sculpted, and then at that point, once it's in the computer, we can then go to any scale that's needed. So instead of starting over, we were able to save a lot of man out. While all of the artistic work is, is being done, inside the team are building the mechanics. In this particular build, we actually went back to the early days when we did the first Jurassic Park. We went with a cable system instead of hydraulics and it had to counterweight it with springs. Inside, we used a series of what we call reverse parallelograms, and each stage would move up or side to side. And over the course of that long neck, it allowed for a gradual move. We recreated the core of the neck sculpture in foam, cleaned out the center of it so that the mechanics could be within that. Then we covered that portion in spandex so that it would slide on the foam latex skin. With the head, as all creatures we build, we try to get as close as we can with our limitations of how many servos and motors we can fit inside of it. And I've asked for this thing to do the world, you know, all kinds of muscles moving. Just throwing everything that we have. You're getting blinks and eye movement. It can snort and it actually blows air. We had a series of three bladders going through the throat to replicate kind of a swallowing mechanism. Subtle, but it's effective. Everything that you can possibly weave into this creature to give it that emotional feeling and make it act, to make it perform, to become a character, not just an animatronic thing. 
you know, to really breathe life into it. I think they wanted a human quality in the eye so you could associate with it easier. And so I tried to give as much depth to it as I could. One little striation at a time. I mean, it's big, it's a three inch diameter eyeball. And so when camera's tight on it, I wanted to be able to see as much depth and detail as you could. We shot a rehearsal which we shared with the producers and the director. And I think it became reassuring to them how emotional the scene could be. We had to be able to react to any kind of emotion or any kind of thing the director asked for. We had two actors that were holding it. It was really nice to see they were excited to touch, see, feel. Because, I mean, it would actually move their arms, move their bodies. There's some chemistry that happens, you know, between the actors and the piece. It just starts to naturally gel. I have to say, Colin Trevorrow, our director, really fought to have animatronic dinosaurs be part of this, this film. It's a warm feeling I have for these movies. We have a long history with them, and to be involved again in the Jurassic movie is quite an honor. I'm not a computer nerd. I prefer to be called a hacker. Aren't you supposed to be a genius or something? I can't get Jurassic Park back online without Dennis Dendry. Incorporating all the latest technologies. We shouldn't be here. And there's five dinosaurs. How many Sarahs do you think are on this island? So this past week, I reached out to our Twitter followers and wanted to find out which scenes were your favorites from Jurassic World. I got a ton of results, so let's go through them. So I'll try not to butcher your Twitter handles, but if I do, just hit me up on Twitter and let me know. Now I gotta warn you, this section will certainly be featuring some spoilers. So if you haven't heard anything, definitely turn it off now. Or keep listening, you can keep listening if you want to be spoiled. Starting with at Storm Arashi 2, this one says, it's gotta be the Raptor Squad's first appearance. You know what Storm? I think that's a pretty awesome one. It's your first introduction to these four Raptors and it's certainly thrilling. So I'll agree, that's a real good one. Moving on to at PVP Cookie Dance. This one says, I say when she unleashed the T-Rex. At PVP. I, I totally agree. That is an awesome scene. And you certainly have all the feels while that gate is going up. And you start to see the eyes glowing through the forest. And you just have that red flare. On to at Jurassic Block. This one says, when Owen took the camera off Blue's head and that they listened back to Owen again, a beautiful relationship. I agree. That was completely sentimental. And you saw the relationship between the two characters there. And you didn't know what was going to happen because of some of the prior scenes. But it was really, really a touching situation between the two of them. At Elizabeth Danny says, When Blue and the whole crew defend Owen. You're right. That's pretty much just what the last one said. And it, it really is an awesome moment and unfortunately sad for some, but but pretty triumphant for others. At Museum Guy Scott's answer, um, the final battle. Won't spoil it, but you know what I'm talking about. You're right, Scott. I do. I know what you're talking about. And it's awesome. One of my favorite parts about that final battle, without giving anything away, is the soundtrack. It's awesome. If you haven't heard it, definitely check it out. At Jurassic, Alan's answer is, it's gotta be the whole raptor hunt slash chase night scene. When Michael Giacchino hits his Lost World game theme, and also 
when Blue saved Rexy, watching our favorite T-Rex give Indominus a whooping. You're right, that was a completely awesome scene and pretty much in line with a lot of the answers so far. I loved, I just, I loved seeing the two sets of dinosaurs team up against Indominus. It was such an awesome moment. And again, that music behind it. It, it really helps to impact that awesome moment on the screen. So thank you to all those Twitter users for submitting their answers. Um, I definitely think you're all on the same track pretty much. And if I was to give my own answer, it's gotta be when that kid releases the raptors from their cage and they go streaking through the forest with Owen right next to them on the, on the motorcycle. That's definitely my favorite scene. And like I said before with the final battle soundtrack, the, uh, the song Chasing the Dragons is awesome and it sounds so awesome behind those visuals. So if that's not your favorite moment, I'll accept these other ones as answers too. So thanks. So I hope you enjoyed this fifth episode of the Jurassic Park podcast. If you want to help us out, you can go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. That will really help us in the rankings and make us show up higher on the list. We've also expanded, so you can now find us on YouTube, Tumblr, SoundCloud, and of course Twitter. If you want to email us, you can email us at JurassicParkPod at gmail.com. And follow us on Twitter, at JurassicPod. Thanks, and enjoy.